The theme I'd like to explore this evening uh, is the theme of a, a path of wisdom and love. And uh, my thinking behind that really is to try to give a sense of the wider context of what we're doing. Uh, so even this practice of cultivating awareness, we may think, well, I'd like to cultivate, awa- cultivate awareness. But the question might come, well, why? What's that ultimately serving? What's that really for? And so you may have today had times when you've got this wonderful, minute, you know, uh, very specific awareness of a particular pain in your knee. <laughs> but then you might think, well, okay, so what difference does that make to my life? You know, is that really what I want to do, to have you know, these very, very specific, very detailed uh, awarenesses of different parts of my body? You know, what's, what's it in the service of? So what's the overall uh, vision, really, of this practice? And for me, these are two of the touchstones, a sense of wisdom and a sense of love. Um, You know, whatever else I'm doing in the practice, if I feel that I've lost sight of those, that I'm doing all the sitting and walking or I'm teaching retreats or I'm doing whatever I'm doing, but day after day I'm becoming more foolish in my life or day after day my heart is growing a little more cold and distant and uncaring, you know, I think, well, you know, what's this about? So for me, this is a place to keep coming back to, an intention to keep checking in with, a sense of, of wisdom and love. And um, Jack Cornfield, who's one of the, the senior teachers in this particular tradition, is, one of his books is called A Path with Heart. And it says that in there, in the beginning, you know, whatever path you're following, whatever particular practice you're doing, it's good to ask yourself this question, is it a path with heart? And... Uh, so these are really lovely qualities to, to come back to and to, to reflect upon. <clears throat> so wisdom, to explore some of the aspects of that, I would say is very much a lived quality. Very much a lived quality. So sometimes we put quite a lot of emphasis on intelligence. We might put a lot of emphasis on cleverness. Uh, we might put a lot of emphasis on a certain kind of knowledge, you know, sort of abstract or theoretical knowledge. And I feel that wisdom is something quite different from that. You know, wisdom is essentially something that's lived. You know, a wise understanding is one that shows itself in our actions, in our speech, in how we are in our lives in general. So we may know these stories of uh, kind of medical practitioners who may be very, very skilled in their field and may have all kinds of really detailed knowledge of certain conditions, uh, but they may, for instance, continue to smoke. <laughs> so they may have a, a more detailed knowledge than the rest of us of the, um, the effect of that. But there's somehow, sometimes with certain kinds of knowledge or certain kinds of understanding, there can be a distance between knowing it intellectually and really living it. And so these wise understandings this teaching is pointing to is essentially something that will show itself, you know, in in our lives. So in that way, I also feel it's not something that can be pinned down. Uh, And there's certainly some people and some philosophers have had this idea that you can't really pin down or systematize wisdom. 
And when we try to do that, and of course we do sometimes, it's the sort of thing you get on a tea towel, you know, sort of five keys for living life. And then you, there it is on the tea towel and you pick it up every now and again and dry your cups with it. But it may or may not have that much relation to uh, how we're actually living. And so sometimes there are certain uh, understandings that really come alive when we live them. The, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, he sometimes uses this phrase, he says, it's not the kind of thing you can write on the back of a postcard. And I really like that. If, if our wise understandings, we're not just, there they all are, written them down, postcard, done. <laughs> it's something that we have to revisit and come back to again and again and again and deepen in. And one of the, the translations of this word sati, which we translate as mindfulness, is, is the word remembering. And I think in many ways our wise understandings are like that. There may be things that we've known on some level all of our lives, and yet we forget. This is a process of being forgetful. And so practice in many ways is a, a remembering process, a bringing to mind. And you can think of this again in all sorts of different religious traditions. It's not the idea that you, you would have a teaching and that would be it. But the routine or the, you know, the daily practice of prayer or meditation or various forms of, of services uh, are things that we do again and again. And uh, we need to be renewed. We need to be renewed in, you know, in our wisdom. So there's so many different aspects um, that we could draw upon, but just to offer a few things that we may have uh, been exploring or noticing on our time together. One thing I think is so revealing on a retreat is the sense also that I sometimes feel that we notice that there's a kind of filter in our experience that we might call our our state of mind, you know, mind states. And um, a friend of mine says, you know, you're always in a mood, <laughs> which we can mean by, we usually, when we say that, we mean you're always in a bad mood. But of course, he doesn't mean it in quite that way. But there's always some kind of mental state. There's always some kind of uh, filter, if you like, between us and experience. And here, uh, on retreat, we can notice that more and more fully. So our habitual way of thinking may be that our mind is uh, representing reality in a more or less accurate way, as if it's just a, a kind of straightforward window on what's happening in the world. But then when we're here on retreat, we can see how much it's being, it's being filtered, it's being shaped, it's being presented in a particular way by the different states of mind that can be around. And we become more and more aware of those. I don't know if you've had that experience, you know, certain states of mind that we can be in, and you're just primed and tuned to notice what's wrong. You can have that, that state of mind around, and then your experience, you're experiencing, you know, what's wrong with other people, what's wrong with objects, what's wrong with a place, what's wrong with a set of ideas. But it's like there's a sort of pre-programmed state of mind that's going to walk into a room and think, well, you know, what's wrong here? <laughs> um, there may be other states of mind that are much more about, you know, what can I get? What's lovely? What's for me in here? So again, you might see other people or other things in that way with that sense of looking for, wanting, wanting to hold on to or grasp what's there. 
And a retreat in many ways is a really powerful way of beginning to see um, the way that our mind is continually uh, shaping and creating all of these different uh, aspects of our experience. Because there's really one level that what we've been doing here is very, very simple. I mean, if if we had a video camera here, I'm quite interested in making videos, by the way. Uh, but if we had a video camera here, it probably wouldn't be the world's most interesting video. <laughs> you could imagine it. We've been sitting down for a bit, and then we've been walking up and down for a bit, and then we've been sitting down for a bit more, and then we've been standing in a queue, then we've been eating. It's not particularly exciting. But there's something about the, the neutrality of our outward experience that reveals the richness and complexity of our inner experience, you could say. So we can see in this very same thing, you know, I'm sitting on a cushion, legs on the ground, being with the breath, and, you know, sometimes that can feel the most delightful experience, the most wonderful experience. You may or may not have had a taste of that today where you're just with the breath. It's lovely. There's no sense of wanting to be anywhere, a sense of real calm and stillness. And yet we also know at other times it's the exact opposite. You can feel, you can sit here and you think, I would rather be doing anything <laughs> than sitting here, you know, in this room with this breath and this mind that's buzzing around and this body that hurts. I'd rather be doing anything. What on earth was I thinking to come here? <laughs> so we can have these, these huge different uh, experiences you know, these real poles of experiences when the, the actual outward simplicity is there. So then we're able to see, we're able to notice. And that really then brings the question, well, what is happening in our experience that creates struggle, creates difficulty, creates a sense of being tight? And how can we find and discover the sense of freedom, the sense of ease with whatever is happening in our experience. And in the uh, group today, it was very heartening to hear many people in the group saying how much they'd noticed um, that when they find themselves wanting something different, whether it's a memory from a previous uh, retreat, whether it's a, a sense of how their meditation has been at other times, or whether it's an image, you know, uh, some sense, ah, oh, if I do a bit more meditation, you know, bliss, peace, you know, profound revelations, whatever it is, as, as an image that I want. But people noticing more and more how painful the wanting is, how painful the leaning into something else, something different, something better. And notice that that, that oh, what's next, what's more, has got within it an intrinsic, I uh, can only use the word dukkha, the Pali word dukkha that we come back to this teaching, which is unsatisfactoriness, stress, struggle, suffering. And noticing too, when we settle in, to an experience, when we really connect with an experience, and that may be an experience of sadness, of grief, could be an experience of of rage, 
of jealousy, of disappointment, but when we're really with that experience and really allow ourselves to feel it in that moment, it's also the condition for it to, to shift and change. And some of the, the pain and the sting has gone out of it. So seeing people, people noticing that in our experience is how we're cultivating wisdom on a retreat like this. Yeah, noticing the pain of the, ah, oh, what's next, what's better. And of course, there's also, uh, as those of us who practice a long time know, the wisdom of, of them, we forget that and we find ourselves doing it again. <laughs> and we have to keep starting again, you know. Um, and that too is, is something I very often feel with this practice, the way we keep coming back to the breath. We keep coming back to our understandings. We've wandered off. Keep coming back. So another thing we may notice in our practice, another thing that is uh, really at the heart of the, the wisdom of these practices is noticing this tendency we have to project into particular things uh, a sense that they're going to deliver some kind of ultimate fulfillment. So we can see this as a kind of projected promise when we have um, certain fantasies or dreams of how amazing something is going to be. And we can notice that this is a pattern around. And um, as you, you may know, this teaching is associated with this sense of, of being born, uh, getting old, dying, being reborn, getting old, dying, being reborn, getting old, dying, which sometimes people interpret in a more literal way as a sort of life-to-life thing. But it's also something we can very much see in this life, this circular movement where we feel we're going round in circles, round in circles, round in circles. And so with our wisdom, we begin to wake up to this kind of circular tendency of thinking, ah, this is a thing, this is a thing, this is a thing. So where do we project this promise? Well, it can be in just about anything. Just about anything. I mean, to, you know, to speak personally for a while, I've certainly done this with, with even, with, yeah, I say even, but with, with items of clothing. I remember, you know, once they'd seen these boots. I'd seen these boots in a shop and I just thought these were amazing. <laughs> I think at the time it was, uh, I'd probably just become a, a vegetarian and uh, I was sort of at that time perhaps more strict than I am, uh, also wanting to extend that to, to not um, using leather, which uh, these days I have leather shoes. But anyway, that's a, perhaps another conversation. Um, but anyway, so there, there were these, these kind of canvassy boots that were all nice and they looked waterproof and they looked really sturdy and they were quite stylish too. So not only could I be a vegetarian, but I'd be a styler as well. Fantastic. And I just found myself sort of, you know, beginning to, there was the draw towards the boots, but then, I mean, just the level of wanting could be so strong, you know. And I remember being. <laughs> It's sort of both, uh, I mean, it's good to smile at it, but there's something almost slightly, slightly shaming about admitting this. But, you know, sort of being with some friends and having some quite deep conversations, noticing, oh, I'm thinking about those boots again. You know? <laughs> and he's sort of telling me about the problems in his family, and I'm thinking, yeah, but, you know, I'll be able to get those boots tomorrow. But it, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Just that pull of the mind towards those things. And those times, and, you know, you can make. Assumptions, but I, I have a confidence it's a fairly 
you know, it's a, it's a fair one to make. But there's also times when we've been infatuated. You know, when there's somebody that you just, oh, you just cannot stop thinking about that person. And it's as if you, you were to walk into a room and all you may notice is the absence of that person. There may be, you know, 15 other people in there. But you just notice that that person is, is not there. And those times you just can't wait to, to see them or be with them. And they fill your every waking hour, and sometimes your sleeping hour too. You know, that sense of you're just really thinking about that person. And sometimes in those states of mind, if you, you sort of begin to become curious or question it, it's as if the belief is, this is interesting, the kind of view and belief that underpins that, being with this person will be ultimately fulfilling. This is going to lead me to a peace and happiness and a joy that... Uh, sort of unbounded and at the same time being without that person is just you know absolute despair hopelessness lack absence and you can see how that that it's the pattern of the mind that gets pulled into things you know this is a thing we can have this this sense of lack there's not enough there's something missing this is what's going to fill it this is what's going to make it okay this is why i need it pulled towards that And the list could go on, you know, we could certainly do it towards particular positions at work. We think, yeah, great, that promotion is what's going to do it. Um, We can also do this towards a particular image of ourselves, a particular self-identity. I need to be a particular kind of person and defend that image. Uh, It's something that in itself, when we're relating to life in that way, it's quite stressful. You know, if we feel that we need to to have a, um, an image that we need to defend, it can be, yeah, it's stressful because you know, we're not in control of how other people see us. We're not in control of what other people think. It feels unstable, shaky. I'm just wondering about the wisdom of saying this next thing, but I'll give it a go anyway. <laughs> and Paul and I were just talking about, you know, if I sort of came in to teach and my, my flies and my trousers were undone, you know, <laughs> this would be sort of quite embarrassing, really. But in some ways, it would also be really quite good because you can come and think, oh, okay, I'm going to be a meditation teacher. Yeah, you know, they're going to be together, breathing, slow voice, all the rest of it. And then it would be quite fun, really, if just the absurdity was, oh, look, his flies are undone, you know. Is actually rather good, you know, just to sort of burst the bubble. Because I certainly know for me, as I'm, you know, in, in this role, that the more, whenever I, I hold it like that, oh, I've got to be like this, it's, it's, it's painful. And, and any, any, um, any identity that we try to cling to in that way has that feel to it. So wisdom then very much leads to a sense of letting go and a different way of engaging with, um, with our life. So if I mention, for instance, the, the way that particular patterns of infatuation can, can keep us kind of trapped and locked and a, a somewhat narrowing of vision, I certainly don't mean for a minute to imply by that that there's anything kind of anti-relationship about this teaching at all. There's certainly not. 
Um, and John Peacock, who teaches here, very often says, uh, the opposite of attachment is not detachment, but engagement. Yeah? The opposite of attachment is not detachment, but engagement. Um, and that's very helpful to know. So if we take that, for instance, into the realm of relationship, as we begin perhaps to let go of the sense of, ah, oh, this person's all wonderful, this person's going to give me everything I need, this person's going to be you know, joy and peace and love forever, which of course is setting ourselves up for the disappointment that follows. But when we're not projecting in that same way, it's not so um, over-emphasized or over, um, overblown our expectation, then we're more free to relate in another way. So letting go of that opens the space for a more loving, connected engagement based more on, on a real connection as opposed to a sense of uh, you know, looking for this, this deep lack to be filled. So another aspect of... Uh, Wisdom that I wanted to explore that again we can notice when you pay attention to your states of mind and how they change um, it's for me, how there can be a certain narrowing of perspective and a certain um, opening vast spacious perspective and with mindfulness and with awareness we can begin to to know those different states of mind as they're uh, around without believing them quite so much so I don't know if you notice that, you know, when you're in a state of mind where you're, I don't know, it's all, it's all got a little bit narrow. It's all about um, what's happening in the immediate, in my life, at the moment. And you're kind of going home from work and you're thinking, oh, you know, what am I going to have for tea tonight? Or why did that person say that to me? Or I wish I hadn't got that email and, you know, uh, bus is a bit late. <laughs> but this is our state of mind. It's all a bit kind of parochial, you might say. It's all a bit sort of small and... and and can feel a bit squashed sometimes. Um, to find times and places and ways when we can also really open up our sense of perspective or what life is about, what, yeah, what we're about, you could say. And there are countless ways we can do this. I found myself quite recently doing one of them, which was, for some reason, I found my mind quite drawn to thinking about the future, you may think often in this practice it's all about being in the present, being in the present, being in the present. But I just found myself with this sense of, of, of widening, widening out the perspective to thinking about, you know, the, the 100 years from now and what everything will be like 100 years from now, you know, 21, 14. And uh, I did what we all do today, got on Google. I thought, I'll Google it, see if someone knows. <laughs> and of course they, you know... People, not used to you, but nobody quite knows what that's going to be like. People have various projections, which I notice, you know, seem to range from being very utopian to very dystopian. You know, sort of either it's going to be this is sort of wonderful world of uh, new technologies, all this sort of very ravaged and uh, damaged earth. All of these kind of two opposing visions. But it, it left me just with this feeling of uh, of not knowing but also something about the contingency of the way we happen to live in the early 21st century. 
Again, I mean, you could do it the other way. Studying history would do the same thing, but just broaden out this perspective. And it's like the mind, I can only describe it, this metaphor, it just feels bigger. And our little uh, perspectives, our, com- our concerns, our worries, our everyday preoccupations can feel held in a much wider space. And I think in many ways that's what we're doing with meditation. It's like all of this stuff's coming and going, all of these changing moods, changing feelings, changing thoughts, but we're cultivating a much bigger space in which it's all happening. Or we're sensing, realizing that bigger space, space in, which it's, in which things are coming and going. Wisdom too can, I think if we uh, don't perhaps uh, hold that, this sense of wisdom in quite the right sense, a sort of near enemy of it, we might say, is that it, it moves into a kind of perfectionist idea. You know, so wisdom is there as an ideal. I need to be more wise. You know, I'm not wise enough now. What do I need to do to get me to this place? Um, and there can then be a certain ideal that's created around that, which is a distance from how we are. Um, and so I think wisdom too, um, certainly in my understanding, it also involves a letting go of a perfectionism. You know, letting go of a perfectionism, a letting go of a, this ideal sense of how we're supposed to be. You know, I've been practicing, you might have this thought, I've been practicing meditation for X amount of months, years, decades, whatever it is. You, know, you find yourself getting irritable or something. You think, Hang on, I'm a meditator. What's going on? You know, this isn't the image of how I'm supposed to be. And that can become a place of, of judgment, a place of self-criticism. If we hold these ideals as a kind of demand, and again, then this practice, in a way, could make us feel more yeah, or could even increase this sense of lack, the more deficient. So there's also too this feeling of of, a, of an acceptance, of a welcoming what's here, what's present. I was reading recently about a Zen master. The Zen master was, you know, asked, "Do you ever, do you ever get angry? Do you ever get irritable?" And he just said, "Yeah, of course I do." But, you know, perhaps after a few minutes, I think, "Oh, this is a bit of a waste of time, isn't it?" <laughs> and you, you kind of come back. But to me, that's I, I like there's a sort of humanity in that. Really, it's not there's not so much this image of being somehow meditation is going to make us superhuman or transcendent or completely beyond the ordinary cares and worries of a human being and we're just going to be this complete bliss being that just floats through life you know just kind of floating and untouched by anything you know uh, something about these uh, the humanity too of, of a sense of wisdom and the humility too really yeah, humility not to become attached to these overblown images of, of what meditation might be about
And yet at the same time, and again as I was talking to Paul about earlier today, it's lovely teaching together. We share these ideas and uh, you know, inspire each other's thoughts. But then also at the same time to hold that with a sense of aspiration. Um, and this is, this is quite a, a paradox, I think, that sometimes we may come to meditation, or certainly for me, and this is not the case for everybody, but for some people, to, to look at a figure of the Buddha uh, awakens in me a sense of possibility. It's like, well, you know, what, what was going on for the Buddha? <laughs> that was a question as he, he sits there. And this teaching that's lasted all these uh, hundreds and thousands of years, you know, what, what was that? You know, what did the Buddha discover under the Bodhi tree, under the tree of awakening? And a feeling that the particular limitations or the particular scope of my own experience may not be the the final story for what's possible for human beings so sometimes with practice there can be this this real sense of aspiration what was that about the wisdom and compassion of a buddha and for me then to hold that together with the It'd be nice to be a little bit less irritable at work, <laughs> you know. There's something about the the, the vision, the, the the scope of that, the aspiration of that, and together too with the ordinary, yeah. The bringing together those two things. Some of you may be familiar. In Zen, they have these um, ox herding pictures, which describe. Uh, the journey, this sort of spiritual journey, and one of the pictures, I can't remember exactly which one it is, but represents emptiness. And this profound and deep uh, realization of, uh, of this kind of flux and flow of experience, this unpin downable quality to life. Uh, but it's not the final picture in the ox herding pictures. The final one is called the return to the marketplace. You know, that whatever the profundity, profundity of that vision, whatever the depth of that understanding, it needs to come back, needs to come back into our lives, our relationships, our work with our neighbours, family, colleagues, come right back into the midst of our lives. And so I think in, in so many ways, wisdom is very comfortable with paradox, holding together the aspiration, the fastness, questioning of that coming back to to the the groundedness the ordinary the concrete and for me then these these qualities of wisdom and love are very much connected so the love, I think, that the practice is pointing to and, and speaking of isn't so much a kind of demand. It's not like you should be loving. It's not a, um, you know, something that we should do or shape up to. But in my understanding, it's uh, the kind of response and the kind of attitude uh, and way of relating that makes sense when we see clearly, when we understand wisely. So the more we see clearly, the more we understand wisely, it's as if the, 
the natural outflowing of that is in a more loving way of being with ourselves and with others. And so one sense of that bridge is um, a contemplation on, on the interdependence of things, how things are connected. And so sometimes we can feel rather separate. You know, here I am, I'm grown up now, I don't need anybody, I'm over here. <laughs> and then hang on, but there's the breath coming and going. You know, so how separate am I from the oxygen in the air around me? You know, take that away, and what's happened to independent Jake? That's not, you know. So we know that as in our in our physical selves, we're just completely intertwined. You know, the breathing and eating, drinking. There's this kind of flow to and from the environment from what's around us. We, we don't exist separately from it. We can't exist separately from it. And in so many ways, things that can feel very, very personal, very, very, you know, this is to do with me, this is what I'm really about. When we reflect on them, how interdependent they are. I mean, for me, this is certainly true of this very talk. In some ways, I think, oh, this is my talk. I, I'm going to give a talk tonight on wisdom and compassion. But this talk is, is in a very, very limited sense, mine. <laughs> um, you know, it's things that I have heard and gathered and reflected upon from other teachers, from uh, you know, things I've heard myself, things I've read, things I've listened to, things I've noticed in my own experience. It's very difficult to say, well, this is a bit that's mine, and this is a bit that came from Thich Nhat Hanh or Ajahn Sumedho or Christina Feldman or... Jack Cornfield or Paul Burroughs or, you know. It, 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 and it kind of it doesn't work, it doesn't sort of pin down in that way. It's like these ideas that are around. And even the very fact that I'm speaking English, English is, I like to say it's my first language, I'm ashamed to say it's my only language, really. <laughs> my very rusty O-level French. Um, but... We know, you know, philosophers, anthropologists uh, tell us, and we can reflect on it too, just how much language shapes how we think. I, you know, I didn't decide to speak English, and yet I have this language, I'm born into this language and this way of understanding the world that shapes our experience. If I had been born in China, and my first language was Mandarin, I wouldn't just speak differently, I'd think differently. You know, all of the cultural assumptions that are there and shape how we experience, well, our whole lives, really. I mean, I mentioned yesterday about time, the whole way we experience time. I mean, people know this is a very cultural phenomenon. Some years ago, I was uh, doing the traveling in India thing and went to Goa and... uh, and we met some people and, and you know, we were having a nice time at lunch or something like that. And I said, oh, you know, I'll meet you a little bit later on. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll meet you at sunset. <laughs> Which is not really something I, I would have said growing up in London. You know, I'll meet you at sunset. You know, we don't think about time like that. It's 6 o'clock or 6.15, 6.30. But uh, go if you've ever been there. I'm just trying to think which way. Of course, it's facing uh, west, the coast, yeah? Hopefully I've got that right. So you see, it's very powerful, the sunset. You're very, very aware of that every day. So that physical environment then, of course, begins to condition how you experience time. 
and in that backpacker, young, free and single, wandering around state of mind, I didn't have the, um, you know, I, I didn't have to be a particular time and place in that way. So it's just that that sense of how you know our experience of time can be created. So in so many ways, what can feel like my experience is we, we sense it's just this flow of things. The power of the situation. So much. I mean, if you just think about it, how much of the way we are behaving in this very moment is... You know, we're behaving in the way people behave in a retreat centre. <laughs> if we were at a football match, we'd been doing something very different. Uh, and again, you know, people know and have done all kinds of studies and, and explorations of this, but how much of our behaviour is to do with environment, context, what other people are doing. Uh, we tend to have this idea, it's to do with me, my personality. I act in a particular way. So much of our action is to do with what's happening around us, the power of the situation. So it's helpful to reflect in this way, in many, many different ways, on this interdependence. In the Buddhist tradition, we talk about food, clothing, medicine, and shelter as the four requisites, the four kind of necessities of life, food, food, clothing, medicine, and shelter. And uh, perhaps more than other people, but I just reflect quite how dependent I am on other people for all of those things. I don't maybe perhaps some of you grow some of your own food or a bit more close to that process than I am. Some of you may have more skill around medicine or you know, building shelters. But for me, and perhaps many of us, you know, I depend on other people for all of those things. So when we reflect on this way, then you can have this sense of, of a love, uh, a loving attitude, a loving perspective begins to be the one that makes sense. How do we see other people and how does that change? Sometimes our perception of another person can become quite narrowed and restricted and cramped by a particular thing they do. So I, I don't drive myself, but imagine you're driving and somebody cuts you up. You're sort of driving along and a car comes right in front of you. In that moment, it's likely that your perspective of that person is, it's like they are the person who cut me up. Like it's hyphenated. You know, that's it. It's almost as if that's the whole of their identity in that moment. And you sort of have that thing, well, how could they do that? It's unlikely that at that moment you're thinking, ah, oh, there's a fellow human being like me who was born and who will die, who has hopes and fears, who has ups and downs, who has good days and bad days, who has people they love and people who love them and people they find difficult, who has challenges I can't even dream of. And so it's a skillful practice to to really help 
shift those perceptions that we can have when, when we constrain our views of others, they become rather fixed. But the wisdom begins to open that up and opens this more loving sense. And so I, I you know, certainly feel that when I'm talking to a group, um, you know, let's say a group of uh, like all of us today, that there's this, this dual sense that I don't know you, and yet in a way there is a sense that we know, we do all know each other. Obviously I don't know the particular details of your life, and we don't know the particular details of each other. But we can be confident of these basic facts, you know, hopes and fears, good days and bad days, the wish to be happy, the wish not to suffer. And you see how that shift of perception works. It, it really dissolves this feeling that the categories of friend and stranger and enemy are very solid and different. And we can begin to see and relate to people with, with some sense of commonality. It doesn't mean we're all the same. And at the same time, and again, this is the you know, paradox that we can work with, to really respect the uniqueness and the particularity of each of us, which in a way is unfathomable. We never get to the bottom of another person. You, you know, it's your family members. You, you, I never get the sense that, you know, I know this person completely now. There's nothing more to know. It's a feeling that on one level, knowing a person is an unending mystery continue to explore That's something else that you can't be written down on the back of a postcard you know? so in one sense it's, it's open and yet on another sense with all of the people around us all of the beings around us we can feel this commonality and relate more and more from that place it doesn't mean that we need to condone or approve of you know, behavior that's harmful. It doesn't mean that, but it means we can sense beneath all of these things this place of connection. And in many ways I feel that's another lesson that we learn and deepen in on these kind of retreats. When you sit long enough on a retreat, it's like you, you see the whole... The whole thing is here in your own heart and mind, isn't it? You can see the the capacity to uh, you know to harm, to be cruel, to be judgmental. We can see these arising in our mind. We don't have to make them other. In the sense of knowing that, welcoming that capacity for kindness, connection, warmth. And when we see it all unfolding and coming and going and being and disappearing in our own hearts and minds, it's much more difficult to then judge and condemn others. It's like, you know, if you see somebody else being a particular, oh, you know, I'm not like that. Because, well, we can see the seeds of that behavior, at least, in our own experience. The, the psychologist and, uh, and sociologist Eric Fromm, I think one of his principles that I like to reflect on, when he says, nothing that is human is alien to me. Nothing that is human is alien to me. You can feel connection with others. 
Uh, hopefully that gives us a sense of the, the bigger picture around this path, the sitting and walking meditation, the paying attention to the breath, the bringing the attention into the body. Again, this service of living with more wisdom, seeing clearly, and allowing that to, to flow out into how we speak and act and live, into our relationships and into the world. And so that's a, a very real sense in which we never, we never really practice just for ourselves. A sense of self and other. And a sense of practicing for, for the benefit of all. So let's sit quietly just for a moment or so to allow the words of the talk to be absorbed. May all beings be free from fear and from danger. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings live with wisdom and with love. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.